Good morning. I'm preaching to you this morning from the Gospel of Luke and chapter 18. And Luke chapter 18 begins with these words, Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. And at this point, I might have gone on to preach a sermon about praying in general or discouragement in general. But this parable, not about praying in general or discouragement in general. Parable is about to give you um, instruction, theology, truth. It's about to give you promises that you need. Things that you need to have firmly planted in your soul in order to persevere as a follower of Christ under the pressure of a particular temptation to become discouraged or disillusioned with Christ. We deal with spiritual fatigue. We deal with a weakening in our resolve. We deal with discouragement in our hearts, all while living in a world that does not applaud our Savior and does not applaud our faith in Him. And this parable reveals what may be one of the main reasons that you can become discouraged in faithfully trusting and following Christ. I want to again remind you of Proverbs 22.3. It says, A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. We could put it this way, the wise... Listen to the warnings about danger, and they prepare ahead of time. They prepare themselves ahead of time with the truth. They prepare themselves ahead of time with the proper weapons. They prepare themselves ahead of time to find a proper hiding place when that danger comes upon them. It's the foolish who ignore the warnings, and it's the foolish who just presume that they will be fine without the truth, or without the proper weapons, or without a proper place of refuge. So this parable is going to warn you ahead of time that you may be prepared for it ahead of time. It's going to warn you of a trap of discouragement that's all around you every day. It's going to give you foresight of this danger so that you don't fall victim to it. And church history has plenty of sad Examples of professing Christians who did not take this instruction to heart and therefore fell into the discouragement trap that's mentioned here, or they tried to fight it with all of the wrong weapons, or they tried to run into all the kinds or all the wrong kinds of uh, places of safety. We're about to hear a parable where Jesus chooses a widow to play the main part. Now, why did he pick a widow? Well, it's because she's the perfect character to play the part. And you'll you'll see why here. In the parable, the widow is desperately desperately in need of something that she doesn't have. What is it exactly that she desperately needs but doesn't have it? We will then see how she responds to her need... It's a need that is certainly threatening her with discouragement. 
And then we'll see if her need is met or if she's left looking like a fool for even asking. So here's the parable of the persevering or the persistent widow. It's Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city. And she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man yet, because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect? who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Dear little lambs of this great and glorious shepherd, you who have put your faith in Christ, throwing yourself by faith upon his promises of mercy, to spiritual beggars, to you, the lowly repentant who have embraced him for the forgiveness of your sins, your Savior, who gave himself for you, has no intention of losing you. And one of the means that he uses to preserve you, to preserve your faith, one of the means he uses to preserve and to grow Your obedience is the means of what we can call the humbling warning. The humbling warning. And that's what this parable is. Dear saints, we are the widow. And that's humbling, isn't it? We are the widow. There's a widow in this story And she was crying out again and again to the judge. And Jesus says here that it's the elect who are crying out day and night to God. Dear saints, the widow is you. But why does Jesus use a widow to represent his people? You're thinking, well, I thought we were the bride, not the widow. Well, for now, we can be described using both images. Remember what Jesus said back in chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. He said there, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. We remember that that answer is being given to the sarcastic questions that are coming to him from the Pharisees. There they are. They're Um, asking him their sarcastic questions about when is this great kingdom going to uh, finally come forth upon the earth? When is it going to burst upon the scene? They're not seeing it. They're not seeing what they want when Jesus is preaching or working. They were looking for a kingdom of great physical, material, political, observable wealth and power. That's what they wanted. 
And Jesus just wasn't producing that. So there they are asking him, so when is all of this going to happen? They weren't looking for the inward renovation of the soul because they proudly thought they didn't need that. So Jesus was preaching the kingdom of regeneration by the Spirit. That's not observable. That doesn't come observably. Jesus was preaching the kingdom of justification. You You don't see that act of God. Jesus was preaching the kingdom of forgiveness of sins. He was preaching the kingdom of adoption. He was preaching the kingdom of the Spirit's work of sanctification in the soul of a person. This is how the kingdom comes into this world for now, is his answer. It comes now in the power of Christ's word and Holy Spirit. It is, we say, that's the way it comes for now because, as Jesus would then go on to say in Chapter 17, the day will arrive when the king and his kingdom, with all of his wealth and power and justice, will be very visible. But for now, it is not observable. So that there's no one in the world, we're warned about this here, Jesus warned it warned us back in chapter 17, there's, there's no one who can say, well, here it is or there it is. So, yes, look with eyes of faith and you will see the bride making herself ready. Yes, look with eyes of faith and you will see the bridegroom preparing a place for her. But when you look by sight only, what you see in this world, for now, you see the suffering widow. That's what you see for now. You see a woman who is the picture of affliction. She's an example of what it means to be vulnerable. She's, a, she's an example of what it means to be vulnerable to being mistreated or ignored or reviled because she is without the protection of her husband. She's without the protection of her husband's care. She's without his provision So this is a kingdom parable, isn't it? Jesus is still teaching on the topic of his kingdom when he moves to this parable. He's still dealing with that question about his kingdom. He was asked a question about when the kingdom would come. He said the kingdom of God comes unobservable by sight because it comes with the power of his word and spirit within the soul. And then, as he went on to say to his disciples, and then, yes, that day is coming when he will appear with visible, audible, undeniable, glorious divine power. And what was before hidden will be fully revealed. But Jesus told his disciples back in chapter 17 at verse 25 that before that day, of this great unveiling of his kingdom and of his power, before all of that would be observed, that he would have to suffer many things, that he would be rejected by that generation. He would be treated with contempt. He would be betrayed. He would be mocked. He would be insulted. He would be spit upon. He would be denied justice. He would be unjustly condemned, and then he would be killed. 
he had to endure through the widow's afflictions. And then he tells a parable where he reveals that his people must be prepared to follow him and to endure with him through their own widow's afflictions that reflect how their Savior was treated. The widow is the perfect character to play this part. Therefore, once upon a time, there was an afflicted widow who had adversaries. Once upon a time, there was a widow afflicted in many ways, insulted, reviled, spit upon, insulted. She had adversaries. And one day she cried out, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. Well, there it is. You see it, can't you? This is, this is why the saints can become tired and weary. This is the particular kind of weariness or discouragement that the Lord is referencing in this parable. This is, this is why your soul can become discouraged. It's because while we wait for the return of our Savior, while we wait for the full harvest of salvation to be brought in, we have to live in a world where the bride is, contreated, is treated with contempt. We have to live in a world where the bride is betrayed and where she's mocked and insulted, where she's spit upon, where she's unjustly condemned as evildoers and even at times martyred. Jesus tells us this so that we don't fall into the trap of thinking that faith in him is going to give us a treatment from the world that's any different than what he received. Jesus is coming, but we have to wait. We have to endure with our souls settled upon what is promised and not with our souls dominated and disturbed by what we experience now. Waiting for our Lord to bring in salvation's full and glorious harvest is the time of our widowhood in terms of the world's unjust and unrighteous environment, and of course because of the world's unjust treatment of the Lord's people. Now is the time of our waiting widowhood. That's a particular reason why your soul can become discouraged. If your soul becomes dominated and discouraged by what you see and by what you feel, It's a parable about the afflicted widow because before the last day, this is a world where the wicked and unbelieving will celebrate their perversions of justice and where they will become emboldened in their unrighteousness. They will become emboldened in their unjust treatment of the Lord's people. Do you know why? Because apparently they're getting away with it. Now, we learned this back in Ecclesiastes. Let me read this to you again. It's from Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. The writer there says he was looking out upon the world, and this is what he saw. He says, I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set 
to do evil. In other words, this is a world where we can see the wicked going to their graves very successful. The writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, he doesn't, he's not asking if you like that. He's saying that's the way it is. You can see the wicked going to their, living their lives, going to their graves, very successful, apparently unpunished for their lives of wickedness and hypocrisy. Going in and out of the holy place, there they are promoting themselves as doing what is good, doing what is right, and there is, there's the world praising them for this. This is a great vanity. This is a perplexing frustration. And because the sentence of justice isn't always observed, the wicked harden their hearts even further. The writer of Ecclesiastes then goes on to say this. He said, there's a vanity that takes place on earth. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said, this also is vanity. In other words, those who practice the wicked perversion of justice, those who become the masters of the practice of unrighteousness, they're treated and they are rewarded by the world as if they are righteous. While those who are working to put off sin, and while those who are working to put on the image of God in holiness and righteousness, they're punished as if they are evil for doing, uh, for doing that. That's what we see in the world. That's the way the world is. Jesus said that his disciples would be waiting and they, they would be longing for this. They would be looking for the great day of the observable, audible victory of his holy and righteous justice, but that there would be a delay in seeing it. Well, we're not the only ones who experience that delay. The wicked experience that delay as well, and thus their heart of hatred against God and against his people is only more fully established, because apparently they're getting away with it. This is why Jesus says that his people will be comparable to the afflicted widow, and this is why the widow is asking to be delivered from her adversaries by means of justice. The widow cries out to the judge to make it right. The writer of Ecclesiastes says what we see is a, it's, a, it's a perplexing frustration. The widow comes before the judge and says, and asks if he would make it right. We're being commanded by the Lord here to respond to the injustices against us, these things that come against us as followers of Christ by looking to him, and by asking for the justice that he has promised that he will bring in the day of his return. Now, when we ask for that, we need to know exactly, we need to have a, we need to have a, a very good sense of what we're requesting. And you'll notice that the context here that's established in Luke chapter 17, this will tell us exactly what we're asking. This will tell you what the widow is asking for when she asks for justice. The context here. Um, it will help you to know 
what you need to be setting your expectations upon and setting your hope upon in the face of this particular temptation to become discouraged. Notice Luke 17 and verse 26. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In the days of Noah, in the days of Lot, there was a great vanity. The wicked praised themselves, and the wicked promoted themselves, calling what is evil good and good evil. There they were, going about their lives, mocking God, transgressing against the law of their nature, transgressing against whatever word they might have heard from preachers like Noah. There they were, eating, drinking, planting, and sowing, with no thankfulness in their hearts to God, and certainly with no fear in their heart before the Lord. There they are, celebrating their wickedness, carrying on in it, because apparently it would never end. Because apparently they were getting away with it until God destroyed them. And why did God do that? Because that was justice. It was justice for God to destroy those wicked people. That's the prayer request that Jesus is saying here that we need to have in our hearts. This is the particular prayer request that needs to be in the prayers of his people. Lord, make it like you did in the days of Noah. Oh, Lord, come and glorify yourself and make it like you did in the days of Lot. Do we not tremble when we think about that, when we think that what happened in the days of Noah and what happened in the days of Lot was but a small foreshadow of Christ in his day? But this is our request. We're asking for justice. We're asking for the Lord's justice. That's the request. Lord, give us justice from our adversaries. What is it that the elect should be crying out for day and night before the Lord as we have to wait for his return? Yes, of course. We are praying, come Lord, quickly. But when our hearts are filled with that desire for his return, what in particular is Jesus telling us here that we need to have in mind? It is that the Lord will avenge us by the pouring out of what is right from a holy God upon those who went to their graves as the unrepentant and unbelieving practitioners of disobedience and persecution. In Revelation chapter 6, there's a window unto heaven, and it's cracked enough for us to look in and to hear something that takes place at this very moment in heaven. John says that he saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God 
and for the testimony which they held. And John heard them praying. Perhaps you would be interested in knowing what they were praying. The saints who have preceded us. The saints who are now there before the Lord in heaven with souls that have been perfected waiting for the resurrection of their bodies, completely delivered from all sin. They pray. And John says, And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? you know what that is? you know what you just heard? You heard a sinless prayer request. There is not the slightest, smallest stain of sin in that prayer or in that prayer request. It is a perfect prayer request. It is a righteous, a perfectly righteous prayer request. Lord, avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And if that's a perfect, sinless prayer request, what might that indicate to us of the willingness of God to hear it and the willingness of God to grant it? Jesus speaks about the willingness of God because we now notice in the parable that the widow is described as coming before a judge who himself was very ungodly. Notice, there was no humble reverence in his heart before God. Notice that there was no love or respect in his heart for other people, but even a man like that can be moved to give justice. The widow cried out to him repeatedly, and he finally granted her request, but not out of any love to her. And certainly not from any sense of his obligation to be faithful to the law, but simply because he was annoyed to the point of weariness. He finally granted her request in order to finally just get her out of his sight. And then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. So what we need to hear is that even that kind of a judge did finally say, I will avenge her. That is to say, even that kind of a man, that kind of a judge can be brought to the point where he says, I will grant her the relief that she seeks by punishing her adversaries. That's what the judge says. The Lord then said in verse 7, And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? Jesus uses a very severe contrast in order to strengthen our confidence and to plant our hopes upon the very real love and the very real faithfulness and justice of God. The severe contrast does that for us. Here's how it works. If a sinful judge can be moved by annoyance 
to avenge the widow and deliver justice, will God be any less in his deliverance of justice for those he delights in? The final act of the sinful judge was right, but he was shameful in his whole approach to it. Will God be shamed by being even less loving and less faithful to his adopted children? You're thinking to yourself, that, that's absurd. That, well, that's the point. If a sinful judge with a distant and disinterested heart could reluctantly but eventually avenge the widow, a woman he had no concern for, what could we say of God's faithfulness to keep his promise of vengeance when brought for the defense and the vindication of a people he loved so much that he gave his only begotten son for them? Has God now, in these days in which we live, has he now displayed this amazing grace and justice to forgive sin and to account unworthy sinners forgiven and justified on the basis of the work and sacrifice of Christ, only to then on judgment day find justice to be this pesky annoyance that he reluctantly delivers on behalf of a people that he couldn't care less about. You would say, well, that's absurd, and it's insulting, and we're bumping up against blasphemy. That's the point. That's the point in using such a severe contrast. It's absurd, and it's insulting to our Savior for us at any time to think or to speak or to react to the prospering of the wicked or to the injustices against his saints as if his love and his faithfulness is less than the sinful judge who had no love and no faithfulness. That's absurd. And it's insulting to Christ. The severe contrast drives that point home deep within our hearts, does it not? Is our Savior's love and faithfulness and concern for us, is it less than none? If we find sinners in this world sometimes making things right, even if it's for all the wrong reasons, what must we believe of him who cannot sin and who will not and cannot forsake the lambs of his flock? Are the present troubles proof of our Savior's inattentiveness? It's absurd to think that. and In fact, it's insulting. Is the present evil proof that God isn't good? Is the present prospering of the wicked proof that our Lord is less faithful and less loving than a sinful judge? The wicked act as if that's exactly what the case is. So the Lord says to us, don't think that. The Lord is saying to us, don't 
say that. Don't react as if that is the case. Don't say things that are absurd or that question his love or his faithfulness to avenge his saints. That's the very convicting and humbling implication that Jesus is making about the doubts that we can entertain when we wonder if God sees our pain. We wonder at times, do we not? We're longing to see his return, but we're not seeing it yet. Oh, Lord, do you see our pain? To lose heart with questions over whether God hears our cries, it is absurd. Let us confess it together. Let us confess together that to harbor these doubts is insulting to him. Let us confess and ask his forgiveness for this. Will it be the heart of our Savior to hear our prayers and deliver vengeance upon the adversaries of his people simply to get us out of his sight? Or will it be the heart of our Savior to hear our prayers and to grant this request from a heart of righteous jealousy, from a heart filled with incomprehensible love and delight to draw us even closer to him. Why is it that the Lord warned his disciples then? And why does he warn us today about this danger of growing weary? Because we have to wait for him while suffering under the injustice of wickedness. It's because we have to wait for him while the wicked prosper and the righteous are persecuted. How can we wait then with confidence? With confidence in his love? With confidence in his faithfulness? Confidence in his justice? But note, if you will, the additional truth that Jesus gives to strengthen us for this endurance. Notice verse 8. Jesus says, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. He will avenge them speedily. That is to say, in a perfectly timely manner. The days will come, said our Lord, and we are in those days when we long to see the kingdom and its king come with observable and audible power. When the saints will be avenged. When our faith in Christ will be vindicated. We long for this. We wait for this. We are commanded to pray for this. And we will struggle with weariness. But fear not, says the Lord. He will return right on time. That's, that's when he will return. That's when the second coming of Christ will take place, dear saints. Right on time. Yes, we, we cry out to him to bring the day when everything is made right. Yes, he bears long with us. Yes, there is a delay But dear saints, take courage. He is not overly delaying the day. No matter how much it looks like that, 
no matter how much it feels like he is overly delaying, no, right on time, right on time. His day will be right on time. A day foreshadowed by that day when Noah was alive and by that day when Lot was alive, that day will be right on time. If you have not professed faith in Christ, you need to be very afraid. Because his day will be right on time. The wicked don't see or hear the Lord in his glorious unveiling. They come to the absurd conclusion that there won't be that day. And this leads them to even further harden their hearts. Jesus is saying to us who are his people, don't make the same mistake by judging God's love and faithfulness and justice by sight of things now, thus leading you to a discouraged heart. Yes, troubles and trials sometimes leave us feeling as if any firm place to stand has been ripped out right from under us. Jesus is saying, fear not. Yes, the wicked rage. Yes, the night seems as if it will never end. Yes, we have waited for a long time, but the dawn will come with the glory of the light of the Son of God. Jesus is giving us in parable form what Psalm 46 gives us in poetry. Listen to it. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Even though the earth be removed, even though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, even though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, Selah, there is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, and we know who the city of God is, there is a river which is poured out. There's a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved, but he uttered his voice, and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. That's the parable of the persistent widow. Yes, the wicked raise their voices, and they raise their fists against the Lord and his bride, But right on time, the Lord will raise his voice, and the earth will melt with fervent heat. But fear not, little lambs. The God of the covenant of grace is our refuge, even in that day. Make Psalm 46 your prayer.
Make Psalm 46 your confidence. This is what Jesus is teaching us in the parable of the persistent widow. Now, observe also in verse 8, Jesus concludes his application with a question, but you probably better prepare yourself because it's a bit sharp. And he makes it sharp because he knows that it needs to pierce through that husk of pride that we too easily carry. That pride which would make us say ridiculous things like, well, yeah, I'm good. I'll be fine. I, there's no, I'm not going to be discouraged by this. I'm fine. Well, Jesus says something that's designed to pierce through that. So prepare yourself. It's rather sharp. Yes, the Lord will return at just the right time, but when He does, will He really find faith on the earth? Jesus isn't wondering if there are going to be any believers on the earth when He returns. He's asking a question that probes your commitment to him. This would have been the point, I I suppose I could imagine this, if you were there in that day and you were standing next to the Lord and you're, you're taking this in, this parable, there he is teaching and you're listening. This would have been the point where he might have locked eyes with you and he would have said, what about you? What about you? This is a question that's designed to pierce and to probe your commitment to Him and your trust in Him no matter what. Jesus knew that waiting for Him with perseverance was going to be really, really difficult. Waiting for Him is a life of difficult cross-bearing. He knew that then, and this is why he probes with this question, what will he find? It's a question, but you can hear it as a prophecy and as a warning. Having to wait and endure with him through the darkness of a fallen world where the wicked are rewarded as if they are righteous and where the righteous are punished as if they are wicked and having to wait in that kind of world with many personal sufferings and suffering while waiting for the observable coming of the king and his kingdom will become so difficult that there will be some who professed the faith but turn away from Christ because they decide that that cross is just too heavy to bear. This is the point where the Lord puts His gaze upon you and He says, what about you? What will He find? What is He finding now? It's sharp, isn't it? It pierces The Lord knew that there would be some who would profess and they would begin little seeds that begin to sprout, but that heat would come upon it and it would wither because it had no root. 
What will I find, he's saying, when he returns? Will he really find this faith when he returns? Because he knew it was going to be difficult. After all, he picks a widow to play the main part. It's a prophecy. This would happen to some. It's a warning to us to be on guard against it. It's a warning for us to be on guard against having false expectations of what it means to be a kingdom member now. You need to be praying, which is how Luke chapter 18 begins. You need to be praying and setting your heart upon his return. You need to be praying for this and setting your heart upon this justice that he will bring this day when he will make everything right. Otherwise, you risk making shipwreck of your faith. Otherwise, you risk making shipwreck of your perseverance upon the rocks of the present sufferings. To be a kingdom member now means... To follow our Savior, and it means to suffer many things, and it means to be rejected by this world. You can't follow Christ and endure with your profession of faith if you are expecting that the world is going to justly include you. You will not endure with Christ if you're expecting that by that, then the world is going to praise you for that and speak well of you for that and justly reward you for your faith and your good works. How many, this is what Jesus, I think, is asking, how, how many will endure with him with this confidence in his love and his faithfulness? Jesus is warning us of how easy it is to look to all the wrong saviors He's warning us of how easy it is for us to begin to put our hope in all the wrong fleshly rescues when it comes to living as a disciple in the furnace and heat of this world. Will I really find faith on the earth when I return, Jesus asks. Sadly, it's a prophecy But for our benefit, it's a warning. Just how easy it is to turn to all the wrong tools, to to resort to all the wrong kind of fleshly weapons in our responses to the injustices that come against us as followers of Christ. Wrong tools, wrong places to hide. Church history is filled with sad examples of this. If you're tempted to listen to this parable and scoff a little bit and say that there's no chance that you would ever grow weary in waiting for his return, and there's no chance that you would ever begin to look to the wrong things for for relief, well then you're the one who is overestimating your strength to get by without this prayer that Jesus is commanding. And so then this is the part where Jesus puts his gaze upon you and he asks, 
will you really follow me no matter what? Will you really have your hope set upon me no matter what happens? Will you really, no matter what, have your heart set upon me and upon my return and upon my vengeance no matter what? This is the part where the Lord is exhorting you, don't stumble. Don't stumble while waiting. Don't let your feet slip while you're waiting for His day, while you're praying for His day. Don't let your feet stumble. Don't let your feet slip. Don't become envious of the boastful when you see the prosperity of the wicked. Don't forget what is promised when you see that the strength of the wicked seems firm and when you see them going to the grave with rewards and praise as if they're righteous. Be careful, the Lord is saying. Don't let your feet slip. Don't don't let your feet begin to stumble and begin to think that your faith in Christ is vain when you see the wicked prospering and when you see the righteous suffering. Don't judge things by sight. That's the mistake that the wicked make. Don't judge His love or His faithfulness to you by how things feel. Don't let your feet slip is what the Lord is telling us in the proverb, or the parable. Don't begin to think that you're putting off of sin and that you're putting on of righteousness is all a waste of time and that it's all for nothing. The psalmist in Psalm 73 said that when he looked at the prospering of unbelievers, he said it was too frustrating and too painful for him until, he says, until... I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their end. My feet slipped, he said, almost slipped. I almost stumbled until I remembered what is true. Until I went to the sanctuary. Then, Then I remembered. Then I remembered the end of the wicked he says, until I, went until, this, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood therein, surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation <clears throat> in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. When Jesus asks what will he really find when he returns, he's... He's fixing his attention upon you. He is locking his gaze upon you and saying, be careful, it's all, it's all too easy to let your faith stumble. Be careful, be on guard. His day will dawn and the dark wickedness which hangs over this earth will be banished along with all who wallowed unrepented in its filth. From Ecclesiastes 8, we read there earlier how the wicked have all the prosperity and praise and how the righteous have all the sufferings and persecution and unjust treatment. 
But that writer then went on to say this. He said, but it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Do we have any proof of that? Do we have any proof that it will not go well with the wicked? Do we have any proof that their prospering is really no more than a passing shadow? Jesus refers you to the days of Noah, if you doubt. You wonder? Is there any proof that this is all true? Is there any proof that he, will, he really will return and the wicked, unbelieving, unrepentant will be held accountable? Is your own heart emboldened to continue on with no profession of faith? Are you emboldened because, after all, nothing has happened to you yet? After all, you sin and the heavens don't open up and judgment doesn't come down upon you. You sin and nothing happens. And you prosper in it. And you get better at it. Habits don't seem to have any bad effect on you. You sin and nothing happens. Is there really any proof to this? Yes, says the Lord, all you have to do is think of what happened in the days of Noah and think of what happened in the days of Lot. There were many in those days who thought it would just go on and go on and on and there'd be no accountability until they were held accountable. In a moment it came upon them If you were to go to your grave with no profession of faith in Christ, if you go to your grave as the unbelieving, in the day that the Son of God reveals Himself in all of His glory, visibly, audibly, you will wish it was just a flood of water, but it won't be water. You will wish in that day that it was fire and brimstone or burning sulfur, but it will not be that. The fact that you're here today listening to this sermon, you know what this is? This is the Lord's mercy to you. For He has given you yet one more opportunity before it's too late to come before him and to fall before him like that leper did when he found the Lord and he fell on his face before him and he said, if you're willing, you can make me clean. The fact that you're here today listening to this sermon, the fact that the Lord has given you one more opportunity to hear his promise that he came to heal not those who are well but those who are sick, This is His mercy to you before it's too late. Why not? Why not call upon Him? What keeps you from this? Why not call upon Him like so many others have? Miserable sinners, guilty, wretched, unworthy of any good thing from His hand, but there 
fell before him and he was willing to reach out and to touch them and to say, yes, of course I'm willing to clean you, to forgive you, to draw you to myself, to conform you more and more into my own image and to reserve you even unto the day of glory. His day is coming, so I beg you to consider before it's too late. Many, many, many have come upon this earth before you, and they delayed, and they delayed, and they refused, and they rebelled, and it is too late for them now. It's too late for them, but it's not too late for you. Today is the day that you can call upon this Savior and you will find Him merciful. The Apostle Peter makes this same point in his own uh, letter from 2 Peter chapter 2. This is what Peter says. He says, If God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And if God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then, see, if the Lord has done that, if the Lord has the power to condemn angels who sin, beings who are much more powerful than you, God has that power to condemn beings like that, And if God has the power to do what he did in the days of Noah, and if God has the power to do what he did in the days of Lot, what are we to say? Peter says, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. The Lord knows also this, how to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Dear saints, pray. Pray and do not lose heart. Join your prayer today with the prayers of those who have gone before us into heaven. Lord, avenge us and set your heart upon that. If you do not belong to the Lord, then call upon him today and you will find him to be merciful just as the rest of us have.